Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer this morning, and we can get into our study of Daniel. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to worship you once again, uh, come together as a body of believers, Lord, and and study your word and and be together in fellowship with one another, Lord, and, and encourage one another. And I just pray, Lord, that this would be a day that would honor and glorify you. Thank you, Lord, for our study in Daniel. Thank you for the uh, wisdom uh, that you've imparted to us here, Lord, the, uh, uh, the details of future events that you've given us, Lord, and we just pray that you would help us to understand them and, and help us to uh, use them in our lives, Lord, to live um, in a way that is honoring to you. Lord, we thank you for, again, this time, and just pray that you would be with us as we study Daniel chapter 8. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 8 in our study this morning, if you turn there with me. We've made it to the final major section of the book of Daniel. We're not, that doesn't mean we're almost done with the book, uh, but we're in the final major portion. The last, in the last half of Daniel, we are dealing with really what you could consider the prophetic portion of the book that spans from chapters 7 through 12. In the first half of the book, we primarily saw a narrative with some prophecy thrown into it. And in the second half of the book, we have prophecy with a little bit of narrative thrown into it. Which is why, as we've mentioned before, if you remember way back to when we started this book, um, some divide Daniel up into two sections, chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12. And if you look at it from that perspective, you can divide it up that way. But as we've also mentioned, another way to divide up the book is to look at it from two different perspectives, or really two different focuses. There's the focus on the Gentile nations, and then there's the focus on God's chosen nation of Israel. And in this division, the Gentile focus is what we just finished looking at from chapters 2 through 7, which is further signified by the fact that these chapters are primarily written in another language. They're written in Aramaic. And if you remember, Aramaic was the language of Babylon. It was a common language of the Gentile world, and as such, since those chapters were primarily directed towards the goings-on of the Gentile world, Daniel wrote that portion of the book in the Gentile language. But the other division is written in Hebrew the language of the Jews. And, that's, um, and that is if you divide it up with chapter 1 and then chapters 8 through 12. And so as we come to chapter 8, the writing switches back to Hebrew. So the question is, why is there this change? Because starting in verse 8 and carrying on through really the rest of the book, the focus is going to be back on God's chosen people. What we're going to see in these five chapters are prophecies that pertain to the coming days of Israel, mostly the coming days from Daniel's point of view. And we've talked about this before, right? All of this is future to Daniel. A lot of it is in the past to us. But we'll see that some of this is in the coming days yet from our point of view as well. Now, if you remember, the prophecy that Daniel received in the last chapter, back in chapter 7, was an all-encompassing prophecy. And really, it was parallel to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, back in chapter 2, saw a statue with the head of gold. Daniel saw a winged lion coming up out of the churning sea, and that represented Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar saw the chest and the arms of silver, while Daniel saw a lopsided bear, which represented Medo-Persia. Nebuchadnezzar saw the belly and the thighs of bronze. Daniel saw the four-winged, four-headed leopard, which represented Greece. Nebuchadnezzar saw the legs and the iron, uh, the legs of iron and the feet that were iron mixed with clay, and Daniel saw the fourth unrecognizable beast with ten horns and the little horn that rose up among the others, and that represented Rome. Nebuchadnezzar saw the stone that was cut out without hands come in and destroy this entire statue that was before him, and and it became a mountain that filled the entire earth. Daniel saw the judgment of God upon the throne 
who judged the little horn and the nations before handing all dominion over to the Son, um, the Son of Man. And this, of course, was the establishing of the eternal kingdom on earth as God hands authority over to the Son to rule and to reign. And that, in a nutshell, is the history of the world from Daniel's day until the end of time, until the end of dominion and authority belonging to those upon the earth, those who are unworthy to rule and to reign, until the Messiah returns to earth to establish his kingdom, which will never fail, which will never end, and which will never be destroyed. And that's what was covered in both chapters 2 and in chapter 7, bookending that section that we just talked about that was primarily focused on the Gentile nations. And let's not forget that in the middle of that section, from chapters 3 through 6, we had four examples of times when God showed the rulers of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, that he was sovereign over them all. And that it is God who sets up rulers and allows them to rule at his convenience, not their convenience. They would take glory for themselves and they would set themselves up in their own minds as I have accomplished all this. And God reminded each and every one of them that that was not the case. He was the one that set them up. Now coming to chapter 8, we switch back to the Hebrew language and we switch our attention back to the Jews or the nation of Israel. What about them in all of this? Remember, at this point in time, the nation of Judah had been taken captive by Babylon. But we should be careful, just because we see them as captives, we should be careful not to see them too much in the role of victims in all this. How should we see them? Well, the nation of Israel was under a time of judgment. They were being disciplined by God, and that's why Daniel is writing this from Babylon. Right? That's why they are in Babylon in the first place. God has allowed them to be taken into captivity. We saw that all the way back in chapter 1, the very first verses of the book. If you flip over a few pages in Daniel 1, verse 1 started, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Right off the bat, the very first verses of this book, we see the truth that we can't miss. We see a truth we can't ignore. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Babylonians. They were under judgment. By God. This was a judgment that started a period of time that we've talked about before, known as the times of the Gentiles. From this point forward until the days when the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom, the nation of Israel, and, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, will be trodden underfoot by Gentile nations. The events in the prophecy that Daniel saw and the prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar saw all take place within this time period. And the prophecies that we'll see in chapters 8 through 12 will take place during that time period as well. But just because God has allowed the Gentile nations to dominate them for a lengthy period of time, and of course they had no idea how long this would be, and we still don't know how, I, how long it's going to end up being, but just because he allowed them to do this for a lengthy period of time, does that mean that God has forsaken his people? Well, Paul asked and answered that question in Romans chapter 11, and the resounding answer is, may it never be. Absolutely not. God will never forsake his chosen people. Now let me just say this. With this vision starting here in chapter 8, as well as with the visions that are going to be seen in the rest of the book, there are really three points that we need to keep in mind as reasons for why God is giving these to Israel. The first point is that they will reveal to the Jewish nation that there will be persecution and suffering coming. And this really fits with what we just talked about with God bringing discipline upon them during this time period. It's a reminder to them that bad things are going to happen to them. 
There are going to be things, terrible things, that come upon them during this time period. Second thing is that it's a reminder that God is not finished with them yet, which really is, if you think about it, is the point of discipline, right? This is, this is God's discipline upon the nation. This isn't a, a total judgment upon the nation. And what do I mean by that? Well, if God were finished with them, why not just destroy them and be done with it? That's what many people think has happened to Israel, that they've been cast aside. But that's not what we see really in Scripture. Why not allow Babylon or someone else to just wipe them off the face of the earth? But God doesn't do that. Even during their time of discipline, even while they are in captivity in Babylon, he's still showing them that there will be a time when they will be restored. The discipline of the Father shows that there's still more to come in their lives. And if you think about it, isn't that what discipline's for, right? We discipline our kids. It doesn't mean that we're casting them aside, right? We discipline them to fix something, but we're, we at no point say that they're not our kids anymore. And so that's what God is doing with this discipline here. Now, the third point is going to be an elaboration on what we just started to see in chapter 7, and that we will see uh, within these visions that there will be false messiahs that also arise. Israel is in point in the, at a point where they are waiting for the kingdom, and they're waiting for the Messiah that will come and establish his kingdom. And we've seen that. We've talked about that several times already. But before that happens, there's going to be a warning here that there will be false messiahs that come that Israel will need to be watching for. As God promised them a king and a kingdom, and they were anxiously awaiting for the Messiah to come, the tendency would be for them to jump at the first sign of these things taking place, right? And I think that's just, that's just normal. That's just human nature. You're given a promise for that something's going to happen in the future. Well, you're going to be watching for little signs. And when something comes, it may not fit everything that was promised, but if you're anxious enough and you're impatient enough, you might jump at anything that might have a hint of that. And that's going to be part of this warning that comes with these visions. These prophecies were a warning against those types of false messiahs, and they will show types or examples of these false messiahs that will plague them in the future. Now in this chapter, we're going to talk about three um, of them, two that occurred in our historical past, and there's one that will be yet future. But to Daniel, and again, at the Jews at this time, they were all future figures in world history, and we'll talk about them when we, when we get to them in this chapter. What we need to keep in mind, really throughout the rest of the book, is that the key figure that is op in opposition to the nation and is therefore also in opposition to God is going to be Antichrist. He's going to be where each vision points us from here on out, and he will play a pivotal role in all of these future events because he will be the culmination of every evil leader and every false messiah that comes before him. And all these others that we're going to talk about will point toward his role in the future. And we're going to see that here in chapter 8 as we talk about um, a few different men here. And we'll see them represented in three different ways. First, there will be the big horn. Then there will be the little horn, and that will lead us to the final horn. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to have a, a vision once again, and this will take place a few years after the first one that he had and under some different circumstances. But God will reveal more to him in this vision, and he will reveal details um, about this time period. In fact, that's what chapters 8 through 12 I'll deal with times or details within the times of the Gentiles leading right up to the return of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. And in all these chapters, a key figure is going to emerge. Um, again, Antichrist, the, the little horn that we saw in chapter 7 will play a prominent role here. So let's look at the first verses of chapter 8 so that we get a sense of the circumstances surrounding this new prophecy here. Daniel 8.1, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, uh, in, let me start over, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. 
So once again, we have the setup of, of this vision. Daniel gives us the timing of this and even relates it to his last vision. The vision from chapter 7 took place in the, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Now, we're two years later into the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And don't miss this, but the fact that Daniel states that this vision is subsequent to the last one that appeared to him previously shows that these two are related. And Daniel understood when he saw this vision that this was related to the last vision. Now, the timing of it is important. In fact, I'd say it's extremely important. Why do we care that he got this in the third year of Belshazzar? Well, think about what happened to Belshazzar. If you remember from our study of chapter 5, that's when we saw Belshazzar was back in chapter 5, Belshazzar came to a sudden end. Belshazzar was the co-regent of Babylon along with Nabonidus, who was either his father or his stepfather. And he was in power for around 14 years. Now, Nabonidus was king, but was away from Babylon. And so Belshazzar ruled in his stead from the throne of Babylon. So this vision here took place early on in Belshazzar's regency. Now, again, why do we care? We care because of the way in which Belshazzar comes to his end. And by whose hand that comes. Turn back a few chapters to chapter 5 for just a minute and look down with me at verse 25 in Daniel 5. This is when Daniel's explaining the vision or what Belshazzar saw to him. It says in verse 25, Now this is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Aparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it Put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found efficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Now this is the judgment given to Belshazzar by God. The days of Babylon have come to an end. Belshazzar has been weighed and found to be deficient. And the kingdom has been given over to Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then down in verse 30, we see this come to pass. It says, the same night, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received a kingdom at about the age of 62. So Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed by the Median king. So the vision that Daniel sees here in the 8th chapter is going to start with the world power of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, and this is all going to be future prophecy to him. The Medo-Persian Empire isn't going to be in power for another 11 or 12 years, at least not in charge of the world. With the number of critics that call Daniel a forgery, or a letter that was written around the 1st century BC instead of the 6th century BC, this is a significant thing to note. The events that Daniel writes about here were given to him well before they actually came to pass. And again, most critics think it was written a lot later than it was because the history in Daniel is so spot on. It is so accurate. Today we can look back in history and we can see how these things actually did come to pass. But for Daniel, they hadn't happened yet. So the timing of God giving this vision to Daniel is significant. And the details that God puts in here through Daniel are very significant. So these are all future events to Daniel and to the rest of the nation of Israel at this time. So another thing that we need to note here is that the way in which God gives this vision to Daniel is slightly different. The first vision uh, came in a dream. And there's no indication here, Daniel doesn't say anything about him sleeping at this time, which would seem to indicate that this vision came to him while he was awake. How does that work? Well, I don't know. I've never had a vision. And you've never had a vision either, at least not the type that we're talking about here. People sometimes have visions when they stay up too late, or when they spend too much time in the sun, or when they consume something they shouldn't have. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Here, Daniel was wide awake, and he wasn't seeing things. He was given this vision by God. So having this vision, Daniel looked on. Look at verse 2. And it says, And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, 
which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. So verse 2 here gives us a setting, gives us a location. Now, there's two schools of thought as to what Daniel's actually saying here in verse 2. And the first one is that some say that this verse is, is Daniel telling us where he was when he had this vision. He was off on the king's business. He was visiting this citadel in Susa. He was in the province of Elam, and this is where he had this vision. So that's what some people would say that, he, that he's actually saying here. Um, that that's where he was physically. But the other school of thought is that Daniel was still in Babylon at this time when he had this vision. And he was in this other location, this Susa, in his vision. So in the vision, he's transported to this place. So this is where he saw himself in this place. And to me, this is what makes the most sense. And I think this is really the most accepted view. And the reason I think that this makes the most sense is because at this point in time, there was nothing significant going on in the city of Susa. It was a very insignificant place. There was no palace. There was no citadel that existed in Susa at the time of Daniel. A palace wouldn't have been constructed for several years after this point. In fact, by some accounts, no palace existed there until after the death of Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. So I believe that Daniel is seeing himself in this insignificant city and seeing it in its grand state that is yet future, and that only serves to uh, add to the remarkable nature of this vision that he gets. So what happens here is that Daniel sees himself in this vision. He's standing in a palace within this city that had no value at the time, but it would prove to be significant later in history. The town of Susa was about 200 miles east of Babylon and just on the eastern border of Babylon. And later, during the reign of the Medo-Persians, it would be made one of the four capital cities of that empire. Under the reign of Darius... The palace would be constructed there. Now, this was all about 30 years and more down the road from when Daniel's seeing this at this point in time. And it, and it goes even beyond that. And we see its significance, really, in other parts of Scripture as well. This isn't the only time that we see this city. For instance, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the one who goes back to Jerusalem after the captivity and starts to rebuild the walls of the city. But you do, do you know, before he goes back to, to Jerusalem, where does he come from? Well, Nehemiah 1.1 says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it, now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. So that's where Nehemiah was in Nehemiah 1.1. He was, of course, in the capital Susa, the same city that Daniel saw. Later on, Esther, uh, the Jewish woman who becomes the a queen to king as, if I can say his name, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, also served and lived in the same city. Esther 1.1 says, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, okay, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces in those days as king, oh boy, there's another one, as king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. I should have just, I just, should have just said that phrase there. What's that? Yeah. Well, they put it in there three times. Again, we see the ruling of the Medo-Persian Empire happening from Susa. So at the time of Daniel's vision, the city has no real significance, but even this seemingly trivial bit of the vision proves to be significant when looked at through prophetic eyes. I mean, if you, if you think about it, Daniel 8.2, you, you read that verse, that's one of those verses that, let's be honest, that's not one of the verses that we throw on our memorization list, right? It's just, it just seems to be some, there's some facts there and we move on to the rest of Daniel. But there's even significance in that, right? How could Daniel have possibly known that this city would be so significant? Well, obviously he couldn't unless God had revealed it to him. Now, it's, it goes on there. It says he's not just in Susa, but it says that he finds himself next to a river, a canal, the Ulai Canal. And the word that's translated canal here is not a common word. It's only used in this chapter. 
The word that's translated canal here, um, uh, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. So why would this uncommon word be used? Well, most people have always assumed that this was just a river that he was talking about. And if it was just a river that Daniel saw, then it would be strange for him to use this uncommon word. But archaeologists have discovered a 900-foot-wide uh, man-made canal that was near the city of Susa. They discovered that there really was a Ulai Canal, not just a regular river around there. So even in this aspect of the vision, Daniel isn't just standing next to a river, but a special type of river for which God had Daniel use a special type of word to describe. So there's remarkable stuff even in that. You can see the hand of God working through all these details. So verse 3 of chapter 8. What happens while he's in Susa? What does he see? Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So here's what Daniel sees. He sees this ram, a male sheep, standing there by itself. And that would be unusual um, for sheep to be off by themselves. They usually stuck together in flocks, but this one here is standing by himself. And the ram had two horns, as most rams do. If you're familiar with the Los Angeles rams or the Colorado State rams or whoever, they have the ram horns on their heads. So we all know that rams have two horns. Now, he points this out, but you wouldn't think that Daniel would have to draw attention to the fact that this ram had two horns, seeing as how that's the norm, right? Rams have two horns. It's like saying at the zoo, I saw an elephant which had a trunk. Well, what other kind of elephant do you see? You don't see elephants that don't have trunks. But there was something special about these two horns, and he's drawing attention to them. The horns on this ram were of different lengths. It says that they were both long, but one was longer than the other. And not only that, but the longer one had come up last, it says. Now, how would Daniel know that this horn grew last? Well, evidently, I'd say in this vision, maybe he saw them grow. Um, or one looked old and one looked shiny and new. Somehow he could tell that one of them was newer than the other ones. We can't really say for sure, but somehow he knew. So there was a first and last aspect to these horns. And the one that came last, it says, became stronger. Now, usually when we read things like this in Scripture, we just kind of take note and move on. And I know... We're spending a lot of time going through the details here. But you know, Daniel saw this for a reason. God revealed this to Daniel for a reason. Why did this ram have a longer horn and a shorter horn? Well, I'll tell you why. It has to do with what the ram represents. Now, look down with me at verse 20. We're just going to get this out of the way now. There's, there's interpretation to this vision. So um, we don't have to speculate, no guessing involved in what this ram represents. Verse 20 says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Once again, like in the last vision that Daniel had, this vision comes with interpretation. You've got to like those kinds of visions, right? Uh, where things come with explanations. There is an angel that's explaining this to Daniel, and we'll get to the angel at a later time, but he comes right out and tells Daniel that this ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. The horns represent the kings. The, the horns are of the two kings of, Medo, of Media and Persia. Now remember from our previous study of chapter 7, horns are symbolic of power and authority. They represent the authority. They represent the dominion of something. Now here it represents the power behind the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, how so? Well, as the name of the empire implies, they were made up of two different kingdoms. And we've talked about this a little bit in previous studies. Uh, Media and Persia, they became one. The Median kingdom had already been pretty hot stuff at this point. Even in Daniel's day, they were a fairly strong kingdom, fairly powerful kingdom. In fact, it was the Median kingdom that had worked with Babylon back in 612 B.C. to overthrow the Assyrian Empire. They were already a force to be reckoned with. However, Persia was a different story. At that time, they were a small, insignificant little country, less than 50,000 square miles of land. But they had one 
advantage. They had a leader by the name of Cyrus who came to power, and he was able to build them into a strong nation. Strong enough that they were able to defeat the Medians around 550 BC and thus form the Medo-Persian Empire. And within this empire, the Persians became the dominant factor. They started off as the small element, but quickly grew in authority and might and soon became the leading element within the nation. So do you see where it's going with this? This is the significance of what Daniel saw with the horns. This is why one horn grew to be greater than the other. But also, remember back in Daniel 7 where we saw the beast that represented Medo-Persia, that was the bear, right? Remember the lopsided bear? He was raised up on one side. He had uh, one side that was above the other side. And this was indicative of this power, this um, inequality of power as well. So we've seen this before. There's consistency here between 7 and and 8. Now there's another little bit of information that we need to note. Babylon would eventually fall to the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 B.C., And this is uh, the third year, remember we're talking here, in the third year of Belshazzar, who reigned for about 15 years, and then the Medo-Persians took him out. So dating back from 539 until uh, about 12 years, we're at 551 BC when Daniel is having this vision. Persia won't conquer Media for another year. They aren't joined, they aren't related to one another yet. So once again, we see the hand of God at work in all of these things that he's telling to Daniel here. As Daniel sees this happening, there isn't a Medo-Persian empire in existence yet. And yet, the angel tells him that that's what these two horns represent. Some scholars say that the leaders of Medo-Persia, whenever they went into battle, they would have a symbol of a ram somewhere in their armor or uniform as well. And that uh, the ram is often associated with Persia or Iran, so the significance just keeps flowing here. So Daniel sees the ram standing there. Now what does he do? Look at verse 4. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So here we see the greatness and power attributed to the ram. He starts budding around. He butts in three different directions. West, north, and south. Why just three directions? Because the Medo-Persians came from the east. They were east of Babylon, but more importantly, they were east of Israel. They were east of Jerusalem. The Median Empire was north and east of Babylon. Persia was south and east of Babylon. When they came together They were the eastern empire at the time. And when they expanded, they first came west, and then they went north, and then they went south down to Egypt. And this took some time, but eventually Medo-Persia became the power in that region, really taking control of Babylon, as we've seen in other studies. So really, this sets uh, sets us up for the remaining scene here. Here we have the setup of the future state of world affairs, from Daniel's point of view, God is showing him, at a, show, showing him a time when Medo-Persia is in power. Daniel sees the ram from the palace of Susa, the capital city, and he is standing near the Ulai Canal. He is represented by two horns, um, one longer and more powerful than the other, representing the authority and power that came out of the Persian influence of the empire. And he has taken over everything to the west the north, and the south. So nothing stood in his way. He conquered it all. And it says he did as he pleased and magnified himself, it says at the end of the verse. And when Cyrus conquered the world at that time, he was known to be an absolute tyrant, a self-willed man who took whatever he wanted. And that's what got him ahead. That's what served to make the Medo-Persian Empire as successful as it was, and that is referenced here in this vision to Daniel. So this is the state of the Medo-Persian Empire. Almost 200 years after Daniel was seeing this, this was true of their existence. They had accomplished all of this. Now in verse 5, we see the next event. 
It says, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So as Daniel is watching the ram, he then sees another animal, another beast coming from the west. Verse 4 told us that when the ram was budding west, north, and south, there was no other animals that could oppose him or stand in his way. So now we have a new animal that comes on the scene, a male goat or a he-goat is sometimes referred to. A male goat among the goats is literally how this could be read. A he-goat is seen as a leader or a chief. Isaiah 14.9 uses a word for he-goats to refer to all the leaders of the earth in that passage. So this he-goat comes on the scene during the reign of the Medo-Persians, and there are two things that are extremely out of the ordinary about this, this goat. First thing is that he comes from the west without touching the ground, it says. So he's coming in so fast that his feet don't even touch the ground. And the other thing is, the second thing, he has a single conspicuous horn right between his eyes. Now, I'm not an expert on goats, and I don't know if you're an expert on goats, but I know that goats don't usually have one horn coming out right between their eyes. They usually have two horns, like rams do. Not the same type of horns, or the same shape, but they have a pair of them. But not this goat. This goat has one horn. So there's a couple of remarkable things about this goat that catches Daniel's attention right away. Now, who is this goat? Well, like with the ram, we don't have to guess at this. Uh, the angel is going to tell it to Daniel. So look down at verse 21. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. So here it is, speaking plainly. This is Greece. The belly and thighs of bronze, the winged four-headed leopard, and now the shale, the, shale, the shaggy male goat with one horn. This is the third kingdom of prophecy, the Greek Empire. So this makes sense because Medo-Persia had everything west to Syria and the Mediterranean coast, and they had everything north to Asia Minor, and they had all of the south to Egypt and Ethiopia. So where was Greece in relation to all that? They were off to the west, west of Medo-Persia, west of Jerusalem also. So the identity here isn't in question. This was Greece that Daniel was seeing. Now there was history between Greece and Medo-Persia. The Medo-Persian Empire had come right up to the front door of Greece in their conquests. They had even overtaken the, uh, some Greek city-states in Asia Minor along the way, enslaving the people, leaving tyrants in charge of them. They were even, there were even attempts by Medo-Persia to invade Greece a number of times, um, but they were never completely successful for one reason or another. So what does this mean? It means that the Greeks and the Medo-Persians, they weren't friends. They didn't get along with each other, so they were never really on good terms. And so when the time came, when the right opportunity came along for the Greeks to fight back, they did so with a vengeance. And that opportunity came along when they finally had a strong ruler that could lead all of the city-states of Greece in a unified front against their enemies. And that strong ruler is seen in verse 21 as well. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king. Now, first here doesn't necessarily mean he was the first, but he was the primary king of Greece. He was a man by the name of Alexander, Alexander the Great. The first ruler of, uh, to unify Greece was Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, but his main contribution was to drive out Greece's enemies from the land and to make Greece unified once again. But it wasn't until Alexander took over um, that Greece became the empire uh, that ruled the world. Alexander was a military genius that is without dispute amongst historians. His army moved swiftly, it moved without mercy, and therefore... It was the he-goat that moved without touching the ground. That's what this signified. Remember in chapter 7, Greece was the leopard that had four wings, indicating speed, swiftness there as well. So he's moving without touching the ground. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old Roadrunner cartoons, but that's what I think of when I think of this goat going without touching the ground. His legs just moving in a circle that you can see it's just a blur. But I think that's what this is indicating, that he's just moving that fast. 
So the horn is Alexander, and he's leading the nation of Greece at a breakneck speed from the west. Look at verse 6. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. So Greece takes on Medo-Persia. And this would be close to 200 years after Daniel saw this, but it is well documented in history. Alexander was about 21 years old when he became king of Greece. In fact, he really, uh, he's really the first person to have officially used that title of king. Feeding off the wrath and hatred that the Greeks had against the Persians, he took the fight to them around 334 B.C., just two years after he took the throne. He left home to fight the Medo-Persians. In the next ten years, he conquered everything from Greece down into Africa all the way over to India. Alexander never saw Greece again. He died before he ever went back home, but he conquered more territory, more people in a shorter time span than anyone else ever did. He moved from the west without touching the ground. And we see more details in verse 7. It says, And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. The goat shattered the ram, took away his power, was ruthless against him, totally and utterly decimated him. I don't think you could have a more clear picture than in in that verse right there that the goat destroys the ram. Alexander was known to be a ruthless conqueror. He covered so much ground in so short of a time that his greatest military military strength was in his philosophy of ever onward, always pushing forward. He was always attacking, never allowing the enemy to prepare for his advances, and then he left them in no shape to ever pose a threat to him again. And as a result of his successes, look at the beginning of verse 8. Then it says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Greece became a powerful and mighty empire. There was none left to oppose them at that time. Historians say that while he was in Egypt conquering there, that Alexander got the idea that he was a deity. He saw himself as the son of the gods. He saw himself as a god. His army would hold banquets in his honor, magnifying him above other gods. And these banquets became commonplace. Alexander, in all of this, as this magnified person that he saw himself as, developed a nasty drinking habit. He liked the wine a little too much in the end, which really became his downfall. And at the age of 33, 12 years after he became the ruler of Greece, he died because of his drinking. And there's there's some question as to how exactly it played a part. Some, Some say that he drowned in his own vomit. Others say that he died of alcohol poisoning. We're not really sure, although most everyone agrees that his drinking played some part um, in his death. But what's interesting is that the place that he died, he was in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when he died. Possibly even the same palace that Daniel is in when he receives this vision. Same place that Daniel sees this this vision here. His downfall is seen um, in the next part of verse 7. Verse 8. We're in verse 8, right? But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Just at the height of his success, he died. He was broken. If Alexander had lived, there's no telling how far the Greek empire would have spread. But as it was, that pretty much ended the Greek expansion. Alexander was the undisputed ruler of the world at that time. He elevated himself to the level of the gods among his people. He had the military might and the genius to take over the world. Alexander, in his own way, there are, very, there are many similarities here, is a type of Antichrist. He had some of the same characteristics that will be true of the Antichrist when he comes at the end of the age. The military might, the genius, the magnifying of himself above 
all other gods. There are all similarities here. And even in his defeat, he was broken, and the Antichrist will be broken as well, will come to a downfall. Alexander is yet another example of one who tried to magnify himself over and above what he should have. We saw it with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar looking out over his kingdom and saying, see all this that I've done. Belshazzar did it, taking the vessels from uh, the, the vessels from the temple and using them in his um, drunken party. Darius did it, having everyone uh, fall down to worship him, uh, worship no one else beside him. We've already seen those examples of worldly rulers taking their own glory for themselves. But in Alexander's case, he did it as well. But he is not the primary example of this. Not even in this chapter. He's just an example. One of many. But the other example, we'll have to save the details on in our next study. We won't get to that today. That will be the little horn that comes up next. But let's finish verse 8 today. And we'll get to the little horn next time. It says, after the big horn is broken, what does Daniel see next? It says, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So the big horn is broken. The horn between the eyes is broken. And look again at the angel's interpretation down in verse 22. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms that will arise from his nation although not with his power. So what do we see here? After the horn breaks, four horns rise up towards the four winds of heaven, which is another way of saying to the ends of the earth, to the four corners. Indicating what? Well, we talked about this some when we were in chapter 7, and probably back in chapter 2 as well. After Alexander died, the Greek Empire was taken over by his generals. It was divided up amongst his generals. How many generals were there? Anybody remember? Four. Four generals. Cassander, he took the west, Macedonian Greece. Lysimachus, Lysimachus, I don't know how to pronounce that, took the north, Thrace in the Asia Minor area. Ptolemy took the south, down into Africa. And Seleucus took the west as far as India. And this did not happen immediately. In fact, for a while it looked as though there might even have been a fifth general um, that, that got into the scene. Another general by uh, the name of Antigonus also claimed a part of the kingdom. Um, and that remained in dispute for 20 years after Alexander's death. But in the end, when it was all said and done, Seleucus defeated him and took his area for himself. Thus, there ended up being a fourfold division of Alexander's empire. Four horns arising from the broken horn, although it says, not with his power. The vision shows that they will not have the same power that Alexander have, and that proved to be true as well. The Greek empire didn't have nearly the same type of expansion that was seen under Alexander. And the four regions of the empire spent their time holding things together, maintaining under those four rulers. They didn't have anywhere near the strength. Again, that Daniel could write this 200 years before it happened is a truly wonderful testament to the power and the might of God, giving him this vision. And we'll end on that note for today. But I just want to say we can take comfort knowing that our God is in charge. The only true God is the one that we serve, and he's got everything all planned out. He has all of these details planned out, and what a comfort that is to us. There are many things going on in the world around us today, acts of terrorism, pandemics throughout the world, the magnification and promotion of sin seemingly at every turn. But even in the face of all that goes on in the world around us, things that threaten to make us feel like hope is lost almost at times. God's plan has not been thwarted or altered in any way. God's plans will not fail and they won't change. I mean, you think about Israel in this place. You think about the Jews living in Babylon and, and just the hopelessness um, that they would have felt in that situation. And here's God giving Daniel this vision to share with them, to show them um, things that are, that are coming down the road. 
We're going to look next time at a man who over the course of six years committed acts of terrorism and barbarism that will make many others, uh, others of which we are aware of, seem tame by comparison. Alexander was a picture of the military might and power of the Antichrist. This man will be a picture of the vile and wicked character of the Antichrist. So the world is not fixed at a moment of time. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to remember that. We look around us and we see how the world is today, and we think this is what God has to work with, this is what he has to work um, around in order to bring his plan to fruition. Well, really, nothing else has to happen before Jesus Christ returns. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. We can't worry about God's timing. We let God worry about God's timing. Belshazzar was holding a feast, secure in his palace one night, and before the dawn, he was dead, and the Medo-Persians had taken his throne. The Medo-Persians were a prideful ram that had magnified themselves over the entire world of their day, and in just ten short years, which in the course of a nation's history is very, is very short period of time, in just ten short years, they were completely trodden under by the Greeks. And we don't know God's timing, but thanks to what he has uh, provided to us in books like Daniel, we do know what's coming, and we can take comfort in the fact that God does have a plan in the future. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning once again, Lord, and we just give you praise for, um, uh, for your plan, for your, your sovereign work in all of creation, Lord. We thank you so much that you have this all planned out. We thank you, Lord, that, that we can read uh, books like Daniel and other parts of Scripture, Lord, that, that show what's coming in the future, and we can take comfort in knowing that you have the entire world in your hands, Lord. We thank you for that. We know that things are going on around us today that we need to avoid. We know that things go on around us today that are not honoring to you. But we also know, Lord, that at someday that will come to an end and that you will take back your creation. And Lord, we just thank you for the, the fact that as believers, uh, we have a part in that. We will be there with you for all eternity and we give you praise for that, Lord. And, and that gives us hope uh, to live each and every day. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for the time that we can come and worship you to this morning and just pray that you would be with us in the next hour as we, as we sing praises to you, Lord, as we hear your word being taught once again. We pray that that would um, rejuvenate us, Lord, and give us the strength that we need to, to go out here today and, and serve you uh, throughout the day. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored by all that we do. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.